From Muse by Clio and the Clio Awards, this is Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. This week on Tagline. The door opens, and there is Carl Alley with a trench coat. It's raining. He's got a half-eaten pastrami sandwich, and he's waving it at us like he were, we were long-lost relatives. And he gives us a big bear hug, and he says, God, I'm so happy to see you guys. We speak with the art director, Emil Gargano, co-founder of Alley & Gargano, the New York agency founded in 1962 that was famous for its take-no-prisoner style and pioneering use of comparative advertising. Elaine Spivak, who I loved, she came out later on. She said, Emily, you know what? When the receptionist answers the phone, hello, Allie and Gargano, fuck you. She said, uh, that is pretty much the way the world sees you guys, you know? Uh, and I thought, well, that's probably true. I recently spent time with Emil, who's now 90 years old, at his home in Queens. And today, we'll have excerpts from that conversation as we revisit his career, his celebrated work, and his close yet combustible relationship with Carl Alley, the tempestuous other half of Alley and Gargano. If you met Carl in five minutes, you'd embrace him. He was that kind of a warm, affectionate, funny, interesting, talented human being. That was maybe 60 to 70% of the time. But when it got dark, man, it really got dark. I'm Tim Nudd with Muse by Clio, and thanks for joining me for a conversation with one of the all-time advertising greats, Emil Gargano. Season 2 of Tagline is brought to you by GSTV. For those of you who may not be familiar, there's a good chance you watch GSTV every time you fuel up. GSTV is a national video network that's had incredible growth, now reaching 104 million viewers a month with a unique one-to-one moment of attention. Think about it. What campaign would you run with that moment? On Tagline, we're discussing some of the most memorable spots in history. Imagine how those campaigns, or your next one, could be creatively transformed in context on GSTV. To fuel your next creative campaign, visit gstv.com tagline. In the fall of 1998, a photo appeared in the 20th anniversary edition of Adweek, where I happened to be working at the time, that caused a bit of a stir in the industry. Taken by Mary Ellen Mark, it showed two giants of 20th century advertising, Carl Alley and Emil Gargano, sitting on a bench together near Alley's home in Connecticut. The two had been partners at Alley and Gargano, one of the most revered agencies of the 60s and 70s. But by the late 90s, they'd been estranged for over a decade. They'd only just reconnected not long before the Adweek shoot. It was Carl who had reached out, and the photo, in many ways, hinted at the reason why. In it, Carl looks pale and gaunt, all but unrecognizable from the colorful, unstoppable force with the fighter pilot's physique that he'd been in his heyday. As Emil would soon find out, Carl was dying and had reached out to make amends. He called me, it was on a good Friday, and we hadn't communicated in a dozen years. And he said, Emil, Emil, it's Good Friday. This is Carl Alley. 
that terrible man, I'll never forget that. He said, you and I were like brothers. I want this long nonsense to come to an end. Please call me back. Their relationship truly had been one for the ages. They first met all the way back in 1955, when Emil, born in Detroit in 1932, the artistic son of Italian immigrants, got a job in the art department at Campbell Ewald, Chevrolet's ad agency. Carl, eight years older, also a Detroit-born son of immigrants with an Italian mother and a Turkish father, was then assistant to the agency president. Emil marveled at Carl's personality, how charming and persuasive he could be, even if it often veered into abrasiveness, and watched with fascination as Carl tried to convince management in Detroit to open in New York, where he felt the real action was. And I couldn't believe what a mouth this guy had. And he said, there's no point in pursuing new business here in Detroit any longer because you own everything. You've got Chevrolet, Schmidt, you've got the local beer accounts, you've got the bank accounts, National Bank of Detroit. You've got all the, all the uh, available major advertisers are all housed in your agency. So what new business can you get? He said, if you set up a, the office in New York, as a new business center, I'll head it there. We can get new business. He said, for example, McCann Erickson got $80 million of new business just last year alone. That's more than we bill as an agency with Chevrolet. And they said, no, thank you, Carl. We're not interested in doing anything like that. We're happy being provincial and obscure and making a lot of money by milking the GM cow. Carl, though, wouldn't take no for an answer and would soon orchestrate a stunt so audacious it feels almost apocryphal. While vacationing in New York with his wife in November 1958, Carl read in the New York Times that Swiss Air was looking for a new agency. Carl had flown fighter jets in World War II and Korea and loved airplanes. So he called up the airline, misrepresented himself as president of Campbell Ewald, New York, and ended up pitching and winning the account single-handedly. He had nobody to pitch it with, but he was an aviation phenomenon. His desk were littered with airline, uh, airplane books of technology. He was, he was really into it. So when he made his presentation, he knocked it out of the park. Swiss Air was so impressed with his knowledge about aviation and the airline industry in general, they awarded him the account. In the end, Campbell Ewald let Carl move to New York and run the account. And soon, to bolster the office creatively, they sent Emil as well, along with a talented young copywriter named Jim Durfee. Landing in New York, Emil and Jim saw Carl waiting for them on the tarmac, their adventures in the big city about to begin. You get to New York. Boy, I'll never forget it. I was like a kid. I was like a kid in Disney World. The door opens, and there's Carl Alley with a trench coat. It's raining. And he's got a half-eaten pastrami sandwich, and he's waving it at us like he were, we were long-lost relatives. And he gives us a big bear hug and he said, God, I'm so happy to see you guys. Come on, let's go see this great, fantastic city. We get in the cab and we take a tour of Manhattan and we see Broadway and my eyes are popping out of my head. I can't believe this is taking place. Uh, he takes us to the stage delicatessen after about a, an hour tour in a taxi cab. And I take my coat off and just as I go to take my coat off, I happen to bump my elbow into somebody behind me. He says, whoops. He says, hey, you stabbed me. And I said, I'm so sorry. And I turned around. It was Henny Youngman. Henny Youngman may be a name that's unfamiliar to you, but he was a wonderful Catskill kind of a comic. And I said, I can't believe this. I said, I'm here in New York. And I run into Henny Youngman on my first day. 
I said, this is magical. They headed to the Campbell Ewald office at 488 Madison, the old Look Magazine building, across from St. Patrick's Cathedral, and walked out on the 19th floor terrace. He was sort of like the, uh, the George Patton of the advertising business. He would, he would, a stem winder, you know, he would, he'd get you so charged up and enthusiastic. And he was so articulate that it was easy to believe this man. He pulled the blinds up. You walk out onto the little terrace and you see this, this row of endless taillights going north on Madison Avenue. And he says, here it is, guys. He says, we're going to take this fucking city. It was an exciting start, though as it turned out, there would be a few twists and turns before they could call the city their own. Their work for Swiss Air got some attention, but then Carl, after berating another client for rejecting an ad, was fired by Campbell Ewald and found himself adrift in New York. They called him to Detroit on December the 15th in 1959 and said, Carl, this client of yours is unhappy with your performance. They think you're arrogant and that you're unreasonable and that you don't listen to them. On that basis, you're out of a job here. You're fired, pick up your stuff and leave. Emil and Jim soon left as well, so all three were now looking for work. Jim landed at J. Walter Thompson, while Carl, after almost a year of unemployment, joined Fred Pappert, Julian Koenig, and George Lois at their new agency, Pappert Koenig Lois, where he got to work running the Peugeot car account. As for Emil, he had his sights set on the crown jewel of New York agencies, Doyle Dane Birnbach, which was revolutionizing advertising with its iconic work for Volkswagen and others. Though we'd never met them, Emil idolized Bill Birnbach, and in particular, the art director, Bob Gage. But as it turned out, even just getting his work seen proved impossible. That was my singular ambition. And so I called them and I asked, I said, can I just come by to leave my portfolio? Uh, and they said, no, our art directors have books that are piled up to the ceiling. Why don't you try giving us a call in the summertime? Bob Gage may be available for him to look at your work. I said, oh, wait. So I waited like four or five months. I called the woman again. I forgot what her name was. And uh, she said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Gage is still very tied up. I said, well, what about one of the other art directors? Couldn't they? Do? No, they're all very busy and they're all very loaded with work. So she said, try it in September. So I waited in September, the same stupid answer. And so out of frustration, I wrote a letter to Bill Birnbach, loosely. And I said, Mr. Birnbach, I said, I've tried for almost a year just to get my work to be seen by one of your people. I'm not asking for an interview. I'm not asking anybody to take any time to see me. All I want them to do is just see my work and tell me quickly in five minutes, no, you're not qualified to work in this agency. Or yes, maybe there's a chance down the road. I said, but nothing. All I keep doing is getting postponed and postponed. The letter got sent back to the woman by Bill Birnbach. And she called me up and she started to raise hell. She says, how dare you do such a thing? You know what the kind of position you put me in? She said, you realize what an honor and a privilege it is to work here? I said, thank you for telling me that. I said, uh, I won't bother you again. Thank you. Goodbye. Emil eventually landed at Benton and Bowles, an agency he didn't care for creatively, but where he would meet his future wife, Elaine, as well as a young copywriter who would also make a sizable impact in the industry. I said, well, my name is Emil. What's your name? He said, Ed McCabe. And I said, uh, Ed McCabe, okay. I said, well, Ed, good luck to you. In 10 months at Benton and Bowles, though, Emil couldn't get a single ad produced. 
He considered leaving advertising altogether, but then, out of nowhere, a new opportunity arrived, thanks to Carl Alley. In the spring of 62, Carl's client at Peugeot, a hard-driving brand manager named Jim Lamar, moved to Volvo, the fledgling Swedish import, and asked Carl for advice on who to hire as an agency. He said, yeah, me. And he said, what do you mean, me? He says, I've got two friends of mine, the three of us want to start an agency, and we'll do work for you that'll knock your socks off. And Lamar, to his credit, said, okay, make the presentation. Carl, Emil, and Jim worked evenings for two weeks on the pitch. Emil had never heard of Volvo, and even misspelled it V-A-L-V-O in the pitch materials. Though Carl, ever the savvy pitchman, told him not to fix it for the presentation. This is how smart Carl was. He said, Emil, do not change it. Leave it as it is. I said, but that's embarrassing. He said, I know the art directors don't know how to spell, but believe me, it's best because it'll reveal the anonymity of Volvo. So he used that as a talking point, but worked effectively. We made the presentation. We won the business. Nobody even came close. So on June 26, 1962, Carl Alley, Emil Gargano, and Jim Durfee opened their agency, initially called Carl Alley, Inc., with Volvo as their founding client. From the beginning, Ali and Gargano developed an aggressive style that went after competitors directly. In one early Volvo spot, they compared the vehicle to the Plymouth Valiant, Chevy Corvair, and Ford Falcon, the big three's small car offerings, in truly memorable fashion. Every one of these cars is a 1963 model with a stick shift, except this one, another Volvo, a 1958 model with over 120,000 miles on it. Now watch the two Volvos go. Volvo not only runs away from other popular priced compacts, it also gets over 25 miles per gallon, like the little economy cars. And it goes without saying, Volvos are virtually indestructible. Volvo is America's biggest selling imported compact. See the yellow pages for the dealer nearest you. Volvo had a slightly larger engine, bigger brakes, and a higher compression ratio, nine to one, which meant that it would out-accelerate the other three cars. So Carl said, let's do, let's do a drag race. Let's do a drag race and we'll get the Volvo to go against these other cars and see who comes out first. And he says, not only that, he says, I've got a 1946 Volvo with 130, 40, 50,000 miles on it. He said, we'll put that in there to see how that does. Drag Race was followed by a spot showing a Volvo tearing around off-road. As the voiceover advised viewers, drive it like you hate it. Volvo gets over 25 miles in a gallon of gas, just like the little economy cars, and runs away from other popular-priced compacts in every speed range. Like you hate it. Cheaper than psychiatry. 
The campaign would give Volvo instant personality and credibility, and sales would triple over the next few years, validating the aggressive style, which the agency would soon apply to other clients eager to stand out in the market. People thought that our aggression was so much. Elaine Spivak, who I loved, she came out later on, she said, Emily, you know what? When the receptionist answers the phone, hello, Allie and Gargano, fuck you. She said, uh, that is pretty much the way the world sees you guys, you know? Uh, and I thought, well, that's probably true. I said, but everything we do is documented and has credibility. We're not lying to people. We tell people the truth. That is our objective, is to spend as much time as we possibly can is defining something, even if it's small, that might be an advantage. Another big success early on was Hertz, the rental car company. They were the market leader, but they were getting hammered by the number two player, Avis, and its celebrated campaign, We Try Harder, from Doyle Dane Birnbach. Hertz had spent years not responding to the Avis ads, but Carl and Emil told them flat out that was a mistake. We got a call from Jerry Shapiro, who's the marketing director at, uh, at Hertz, and he said, I'd like to come by for, uh, for a conversation, Emil. He said, uh, oh, we're getting beat up. We need help. If Avis continues to do what they are doing, in two years, our projection is that we will be number two and they will be number one. So their effective advertising is so effective that it's killing us. He said, look, at Avis has been implying that you are lazy, sloppy, indifferent, for four years. It's a four-year punishment that you've taken from these people and you haven't opened your mouth. You are now entitled after four years to retaliate. And they said, we agree with you. The question is, how will you do it? What they did at first was a series of print ads that completely turned the tables, mocking Avis for being second rate. Jim said, look, I've got the first part of a headline completed, but I haven't got the back end of it written. For years... Avis has been telling you, Hertz is number one. He says, but I don't have the end of it. And John Carpenter, an account guy, said, now we'll tell you why. And an account man finished the ad for Jim Durfee. I'll never forget that. And I applaud him. I said, hey, John, that's brilliant. You did it. And so everybody said, okay, that'd be the first ad. And that was the first ad. It was a spread, and we did it spread in the New York Times and Time Magazine and so forth. More ads followed with the slogan, we're number one, and the image of a raised index finger, which would soon become a phenomenon all its own, including giant foam fingers at football games. Ed McCabe, who joined the agency by this point, made a spot with art director Ralph Amorati that was so antagonistic, several networks wouldn't run it. It showed a We Try Harder balloon being slowly, flatulently deflated as the announcer ridicules Avis and its approach. Hertz has a competitor that says they try harder. Probably because they can't talk about anything else. They can't talk about having a lot of cars to offer their customers because they have only half as many as number one. They can't talk about convenience because they have only about half as many places to pick up or leave a car. They can't even talk about price because they charge just as much as number one. So they make a big thing about trying hard, about clean ashtrays, about all the other services a customer should expect, automatically. 
Hertz regrets that we had to do this in public. But it had to be done. Rent a new Ford from Hertz. We're number one. The campaign quickly stopped the bleeding, and Hertz was ascendant once more. But that was 90 days. It took only 90 days. And then Bill Bernbach grabs Helmut Krohn. I heard this third hand, of course, uh, and says, Helmut, what are you going to do now? That was one of the great advertising campaigns and advertising history, presumably. And we killed it in 90 days. That's a great, that's a great accomplishment. The 60s, in general, were a thrilling time to be in advertising. The creative revolution was underway, with the industry finding completely new ways of engaging consumers, all against the backdrop of momentous political, economic, and societal change. Much of this was immortalized, of course, in Matthew Weiner's Mad Men, though Emil, like many ad execs from that era, says the goings-on at Sterling Cooper Draper Price bore a little resemblance to what he knew as agency life at the time. That series was amusing entertainment, but it was antithetical to who we were and how we conducted life. I mean, I never went to lunch, rarely. I'd go to lunch with a client whenever, rarely we went to a lunch with a client. We didn't wine and dine our clients. Uh, we didn't send them lavish gifts at the, uh, the end of the year. We did none of that stuff that agencies historically do. And uh, they win favor with their clients because the account people are uh, in tune with when the anniversaries for the clients occur uh, and when the wives' birthdays occur and flowers and candy and gifts are submitted. And uh, that's the way you keep business. Oftentimes it was conducted on the golf, golf course. None of us played golf at the time, so we didn't know how to do that. Yeah, I mean, my, uh, you know, my meals were slid under the door. And I worked until, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, even on weekends. And I didn't drink. I didn't drink because I wanted to be clear-headed. If I drank, I couldn't, I couldn't think clearly. So I never went to lunch. I loved what I was doing. I had my drawing, my drawing board when I didn't spend most of the day critiquing and examining and accepting or rejecting other people's work. I would then take my turn in the evening to do the things that I love to do. And that's how I spent my day. To Emil, one plot line starkly highlighted the difference. In season four, when Don takes out an ad in the New York Times renouncing tobacco on moral grounds, but only because he just lost Lucky Strike. Carl and Emil, meanwhile, made a pact never to do cigarette ads to begin with, but also didn't make a big deal of it. When they got fired, then they, they announced the ad that they were never going to take advertising. You know, that is, the, that is precisely the thing I was talking about. To claim to be virtuous is, is not virtue. We never advertised this. We never made announcements publicly about the fact that we would never take on a cigarette account. That sounded like you're pounding your chest for virtue. You know, oh, look, at, look how good we are. But uh, that, those are the things that we agreed on before we ever started the agency. He said, there's certain things that we will not do. We will not do cigarette advertising. We will not do advertising that somehow fouls the earth, that does something that's destructive in any form. Uh, chemicals that you pour on your lawn that leach into the ecosystem and contaminate your drinking water. We're not going to have anything to do with those kinds of products. As the 60s came to an end, the agency was on a roll. Along with Hertz, they had accounts like IBM, iOS, Crystal Kitchens, 
Pearl Brewing, and Carter Wallace. They also leaned heavily into their airline and auto expertise, what they called wings and wheels. They lost Volvo in 67, but added Fiat in 1970, and would later work with Saab as well. In terms of airlines, they handled SAS, then Northeast, and eventually Pan Am. And it would be yet another aviation company that would take the agency to new heights in the 70s, beginning with a meeting in Memphis that seemed unexceptional enough at first that Emil didn't even attend, though Carl and Jim did return with a glowing review of a young entrepreneur named Fred Smith. Little did they know they were about to make Federal Express a household name. And they came back and they said, Emil, this guy's extraordinary, but we don't know about whether or not this is a client that would be good for us to accept, simply because he's been at it now for about a year He's running out of money. He took all of his inheritance money and he invested it in the company and asked his sister to take her inheritance money as well and join uh, in investing in Federal Express. And he, when we met him, he was going to Las Vegas to gamble in order to meet payroll. That's how bad it was. And so we said, we don't know if this is a good piece of business to take because what if he runs up a bunch of expenses in media, and we'll get stuck with it. After structuring a financial plan to protect themselves, the agency got to work. It would turn out to be the best decision they ever made. America, you've got a new airline. The first major airline in over 30 years. There's no first class, no meals, no movies. In fact, no passengers, just packages. Small, important shipments and have to get where they're going overnight. Up to now, I've had to fly at the mercy of the passenger airlines. Not anymore. Federal Express, a whole new airline for packages only. The Clio-winning spot, America, You've Got a New Airline, was followed by a classic Ali and Gargano Phase 2, hammering the competition. They took 47 boxes, filled them with sand, and mailed them to 47 cities using Emory, the cargo airline, then did the same with FedEx. It wasn't close, 93% of the FedEx packages arrived the next day, compared to just 42% for Emory. It was Volvo Drag Race all over again, and they crowed about the results in TV and print ads, one of which carried the headline, twice as good as the best in the business. As we rolled out the markets, uh, the money kept coming in. And uh, uh, it became, within a relatively short period of time, a national brand. The campaign from writer Patrick Kelly and art director Mike Tesh would run for a decade, and in a bit of a departure for the agency, embrace humor and a playful new tagline to get people comfortable with the new service. A lot of people think using Federal Express is complicated, but really, it's so simple, even a vice president can do it. Hello, Federal. All you do is pick up the phone. We come to your office and pick up the package. Well, even a president can do that. Hello, Federal. In fact, using Federal Express is so simple, that even a chairman of the board can do it. Hello! Um. Federal Express, when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. The work became famous, and in 1979, they made the most iconic FedEx ad of all, directed by Joe Settlemeyer and starring John Moshita, better known as the fast-talking man. 
Okay, Eunice Travel Plans, I need to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday, got it? Got it. Got it. So you want to work here, what really makes you think you deserve a job here? Well, sir, I think I'm like, you don't go to figures and have a sharp mind. Excellent, can you start on Monday? Yes, sir, absolutely, without hesitation. Congratulations, welcome aboard. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And in conclusion, Jim, Bill, Bob, Call, Fred, Low, Dork, Eight of and Ted. Business is business, and as we all know, in order to get something done, you got to do something. In order to do something, we got to get to work. So let's get to work. Thank you for taking the meeting. Peter did a bang-up job. I'm putting you in charge of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. I know it's perfect, Peter. That's why I picked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's perfect. Peter, may I call you Pete? Call me Pete. Pete. There's a Mr. Schnittler here to see you. Home to wait 15 seconds. Can you wait 15 seconds? I'll wait 15 seconds. Congratulations on your deal in Denver, Dave. I'm putting you down to deal with Dallas. Don, is it a deal? Do we have a deal? It's a deal. I got to go. I got a call coming in. Hi, Doc. Just dealt with Don. In this fast-moving, high-pressure, get it done yesterday world. Aren't you glad there's one company that can keep up with it all? You got a deal, good. I'm putting you down to deal with Dick. Dick, what's the deal with the deal? Are we dealing? We're dealing. Dave, it's a deal with Don, Dork, and Dick. Dork, it's a deal with Dave, Dick, and Dave. Don, it's a Dork with Dick, Dave, and Doug. Gotta go, Dave. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dick. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dan. Disconnecting. Federal Express. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. Out of the 90 clients we had over our quarter century, FedEx was undoubtedly uh, the best. We learned in our research that if we get the name Federal Express up earlier in the commercial, it'll raise attention levels because people look forward to seeing a Federal Express commercial. Can you say that about most advertising today? I mean, I don't know. FedEx aside, Ellie and Gargano was generally wary of humor, seeing it often as a distraction from the message. In Amel's view, the biggest creative misstep the agency ever made was a comic campaign for Goodyear in 1972, dreamed up by an eccentric former Wells Rich Green copywriter a campaign that fell totally flat and saw the agency fired after just six months. I became vulnerable uh, to a trend where humor overtook rationality. I decided after that one experience never to do that again. I said, let's deal with content first, substance, honesty, tell it the way it is. If we can make it funny, great, but that's not gonna be the basis on which we start, which is what goes on today. Once again, thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, GSTV. GSTV recently launched Amplify, a retail media network that helps CPG marketers reach consumers primed to spend in the last mile of the consumer journey. With two in three GSTV viewers shopping on the day they fuel up, Amplify is a solution for CPG marketers to ensure your campaigns are being seen and influencing your consumer's next action. To learn more, visit gstv.com amplify. Another big win for the agency in the 70s was Pan Am, Carl and Amel's fourth airline in the space of 11 years, after Swissair, SAS, and Northeast. J. Walter Thompson had had a stranglehold on the business for decades, but Carl and Amel won a corporate image assignment after some Northeast execs joined Pan Am. In one early meeting, Carl, always good for a shocking comment or two, poked fun at Thompson's existing tagline, Pan Am makes the going great, joking that it would be a better line for Xlax. The client, luckily, found this hilarious. It's the kind of disarming humor and the brilliance of knowing the timing, what to say, how to say it, and to whom to say it to. He was extraordinary in that way. In the end, they resurrected an older Thompson slogan, the world's most experienced airline, and leaned into Pan Am's heritage, including its ties to Charles Lindbergh, who, after his historic solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, had gone to work for Pan Am in the 30s searching for bases in the Pacific where its planes could refuel. By the 70s, Lindbergh was on the company's board of directors. And while he'd always forbidden the use of his image in advertising, he made an exception for a stunning Pan Am print ad from 1971 that carried the headline, Why We Fly Where Others Don't. At the time, I was, uh, I was in awe of uh, 
of Mr. Lindbergh. I still am in awe of him. I mean, what he did was incredible. I learned later on as I matured, uh, his, uh, his politics were, uh, were contrary to my own. And, uh, but nevertheless, what he accomplished was miraculous. And he was so impressed with um, the work that we did that he said, I'd like to meet the gentleman who did it. And we got to go to his office and meet him. He's a tall, lanky, boyish looking man. Uh, and I said to him, uh, Mr. Lindbergh, I know I've been in your historical library and I've seen all the photographs. There's a photograph of you in an open, open cockpit airplane. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful photograph. It would be great. You would grant me permission to use it. I would really appreciate it. He said, by all means, go right ahead and use it. Elsewhere in the 70s, the agency expanded into all sorts of categories with clients like Travelers, Beefeater Gin, Pirelli Tires, and Barney's. And while, like any business, there were ups and downs, the place became known as a kind of creative Camelot, with Emil especially adept at hiring top-notch talent. So many greats cycled through. McCabe, Amirati and Martin Puris, Roy Grace, Helene Spivak, Tom Messner, Ron Berger, and Barry Viteri, Patrick Kelly, Mike Tesh, the list goes on. They'd created a place people were desperate to get into, much as Emil had felt about Doyle Dane back in the 60s. And in fact, in 1978, the year after Carl finally added Emil's name to the door, who should come calling, irony of ironies, eager to acquire Ali and Gargano and make Emil their creative chief? None other than Doyle Dane Birnbach. Bill Birnbach and Bill Gage, those were my two real heroes in advertising. They wouldn't have let me in the door, not even to, to get, have anybody look at my work. Some 20 years later, when they were looking for a creative director, they wanted to buy our agency. I said, irony, incredible. I said, I couldn't get my foot in the door 20 years ago. Now you want me to be your creative director? Enormously gratifying. Uh, there is a God. In the end, the deal with DDB collapsed. But 1979 would be a memorable year nonetheless, as Ali and Gargano shuffled its leadership and picked up another agency-defining account. In April, Emil became CEO, with Carl, who was feeling burned out, retaining the role of chairman. Then in the summer, at Carl's insistence, they hired for the first time a COO, Ed Gallagher. This would eventually drive a wedge between Emil and Carl, as Carl would come to feel left out, but at the outset, it was productive. Before the year was up, Gallagher's connection to a Harvard classmate, Bill McGowan, would secure a new account whose advertising in the 80s would become iconic. You can see the same long distance call to the same place at the same time doesn't cost the same. Fact is, it can be half as much on MCI, the nation's long distance phone company. If your long distance bills are more than $25 a month, make one more call to MCI and join more than a million people across the country cutting those bills down to size. You haven't been talking too much, just paying too much. McGowan's goal for MCI to take on AT&T and its Bell Monopoly meshed well with Ali and Gargano's competitive mindset. The work they would make together would, by 1985, help MCI achieve the highest revenue growth of any company in American history to that point. Along with the split-screen ads showing a rapidly rising Bell price meter and a slower MCI meter, they went so far as to parody AT&T's commercials, including a well-liked spot from 1981 showing a black couple getting emotional talking about their son, who'd just called home. Here's the AT&T spot. Joey called this morning. So how's Joey? Joey? What's wrong? Nothing. Nothing? Our Joey called 2,000 miles. 
The kids are all right? Fine. Sally? Fine. The kids are fine. Sally's fine. So why did he call? I asked him that too. And why are you crying? Because Joy said I call. Just because I love you, Mom. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. And here's MCI's version, made by Tom Messner and George Uringer. Have you been talking to our son on long distance again? Did he tell you how much he loves you? And did he tell you how well he's doing in school? All those things are wonderful. What on earth are you crying for? Have you seen our long distance bill? If your long distance bills are too much, call MCI. Sure, reach out and touch someone. Just do it for a whole lot less. MCI also made good use of celebrity endorsements, including this spot, written by Helene Spivak, starring Joan Rivers. Have you heard AT&T's latest promise? Now they're not just reaching out, they're reaching out in new directions. Oh, please, they're reaching out in the same direction they always have, via wireless. Am I right? Look, take my advice. Call MCI. They'll save you up to 30, 40, even 50% on long-distance calls to any other state from coast to coast. And they'll keep their hands themselves. Call MCI now. Join Joan Rivers and save on all your long-distance calls across Texas and across the country. MCI's underdog spirit, expressed largely through the advertising, gave it a buzz in culture that helped it punch well above its media weight. Despite being outspent 10 to 1, awareness of MCI advertising hit 81% by 1984, compared to 74% for AT&T. And the company was even credited with helping bring about the breakup of the century-old Bell system in 1982. Beyond MCI, the early 80s were just a charm time for Ali and Gargano, which also introduced, in 81, one of the most charming ad characters of all time, who would stick around well into the 90s. Time to make the donuts. Dunkin' Donuts are always fresh. I made the donuts. We make them at least twice every day. Time to make the donuts. Not a few kinds, like supermarkets. Made the donuts. Time to make the donuts. But up to 52 varieties. The donuts. <laughs> Time to make the donuts. I made the donuts. Dunkin' Donuts, up to 52 varieties, fresh day and night. No supermarket can say that. Michael Vale's 16-year run as Fred the Baker for Dunkin' Donuts was typical Ali and Gargano. Fun, yet strategic, putting a friendly face on a serious fight against the rise of in-store bakeries at supermarkets. Dunkin' would remain with the agency for 18 years, longer than any other client, and Fred would become so beloved that upon his retirement in 97, SNL did a tribute sketch with John Lovitz. You know, for 15 years, it's been time to make the donuts. And now, it's time to die. <laughs> what's, uh, what's going on over there, Mike? Well, you know, it's that closure thing I was talking about, you know. Fred made his donuts, and now he's going to go home and take his own life. <laughs> that's, that's a little dark for a donut commercial, Mike. Uh, just go a little lighter, and we can get out of here. Okay? Boy, it has been a wild ride, hasn't it? Sure has, Mike. Okay. Everyone ready? And action! At Dunkin' Donuts, you can always count on starting your day right because we're up at the crack of dawn. Time to make the donuts. Thousands of donuts, all the same, like people. Destined to be chewed up, pooped out, and forgotten. (laughs) Cut!
in retrospect, the period from 1982 to 1983 was the high point for the agency. Account billings had tripled since Emil took over as CEO in 79, and in 1982, Ali and Gargano was named Agency of the Year by AdAge, its first such honor. That same year, Emil was inducted into the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame, and two years later, he and Carl were both welcomed into the One Club Hall of Fame. The success continued in 1983, with a slew of new accounts, as the shop seemed poised to make this third decade its best yet. Even in the good times, though, a level of instability always lurked beneath the surface, a lot of it due to Carl's unpredictable personality. Jim Durfee, Ed McCabe, and others had left over tensions with Carl, and the clients didn't fare much better. Volvo, Pan Am, Fiat, and FedEx were among the many clients who fired the agency, wholly or in part, because of run-ins with its volatile leader. In the 17 years he was CEO, he only, he only accomplished so much in terms of billings because there was a dark side of him that was very destructive. And I never went into any of that, and I'm not going to go into it now, about the things that he said and did to clients that destroyed relationships almost instantly. And it's sad. It's sad. I, I didn't know how we lost a Volvo account. I was in California doing a commercial. I came back and I thought somebody had died in the agency. There was so much gloom. And then Jim comes up to me and says, Amy, we lost a Volvo account. I said, what? How could that be? I said, they loved us. He says, there's no explanation for it. Fifteen years later, I found out how and why from Jim Lamar, the guy who hired us originally, who then went to Skelly McCabe and Slows. I'm reluctant to tell you how it happened, but it's not uncharacteristic. of No one would be surprised by it. We had, had had such a success for Volvo that Carl thought he was beyond criticism or any kind of a, a disagreement. He, it was going to be his way. And, and that's with clients, which is not too smart a way to operate. When we lost the FedEx account, I was bewildered. What he did and what he said uh, was reason why we got fired. Uh, the person who fired us uh, carried that grudge and that humiliation for years and waited for the opportunity and the opportunity came and she had enough power to fire us. She did. By the end of 83, after a sparkling 20 years in business, the wheels began to fall off. In December, in what Emil has since described as the biggest mistake of his career, they took the company public, which would introduce all sorts of new problems. 1984 would be nothing short of disastrous, with a string of client losses, along with jealousy and infighting after the IPO, and an escalating conflict between Carl and Ed Gallagher that saw Ed fired by the new board of directors over Emil's objections. Meanwhile, Emil, caught between Ed and Carl, saw his own relationship with Carl Sauer almost irrevocably. If you met Carl in five minutes, you'd embrace him. He was that kind of a warm, affectionate, funny, interesting, talented human being. But there was a dark side of the man that when it emerged that he was a manic depressive. And when he discovered that, I mean, when we lost Hertz, he was gone for almost a year. He would show up occasionally, maybe once a week to check his mail and to confer with his secretary. He'd come in and say hello to Jim and me and leave. Uh, that went on for almost a year. He came in shortly after that and said, I found out what my problem is. I'm a manic depressive. 
But you know what? I'm in good company. Abraham Lincoln was a manic depressive. So he would always see a positive of something. The side of him that was so enduring uh, when he was upbeat, uh, there was nobody better to be around than Carl. He was that kind of a person. And that was maybe 60 to 70% of the time. But when it got dark, man, it really got dark. Having secured his payday, Carl left the agency for good in 1985, while Emil soldiered on. In 86, the company was acquired by Marketing Corporation of America, a Connecticut conglomerate whose biggest client was the cigarette maker Newport. It was a terrible match. Over the next 10 years, the agency would wither into a shell of its former self, with a particularly stinging loss coming in 1988 when they were fired by Saab at the urging of a new consultant at the automaker, none other than Carl Alley. This would mark a permanent break between Carl and Emil until the last months of Carl's life. In summary, what it came out to be was that after a long period of time, uh, those kind of uh, dark moments that you've turned away from for so many years uh, have a cumulative effect. I said, enough, I'm, I, I can't handle it anymore. You, you know, and I walked away from it. Emil would remain at the agency until 1991, when his MCA contract was up. And in 1995, Ali and Gargano would fail completely under new ownership and close for good, 33 years after its dazzling debut. It was a sad ending indeed for a company that had been such a force in the industry for so long. As for Carl and Emil, there would be no storybook ending there either, though they would reconcile briefly in 1998, when Carl invited Emil to Connecticut for what would be a rather painful goodbye. So I went up there, and what I saw was was tragic. He, um, he was a pretty burly man. He was only, he wasn't very tall. He was only about five foot eight, but maybe 225 pounds, something like that. He had a pot like this. It was really out there. He was tough. A tough Carl was a tough guy. You wouldn't want to get in a fight with him. He'd uh, kick your ass. When I saw him, he was in his um, house in Rowayton, Connecticut, which used to be an old oyster house. And he converted it as a weekend retreat many years ago, and then decided to move in permanently. And it was a beautiful little place. And he had a, a woman from Costa Rica who was his nursemaid. And he had one of those um, lifts that uh, that uh, are on the side of a, of stairs. So he couldn't, he couldn't maneuver a flight of stairs. He'd have to sit in this lift. Her name was Nubia. And she and her son uh, took care of Carl. When I went to the house and went to the second floor, he was seated in the bedroom and he had short sleeves and short, a pair of shorts on. And his arms and legs looked like broom handles. He was emaciated. And his face was so gaunt and pale. I looked at him, I said, Connor, how are you? He said, I'm fine, I'm fine, man. It's so good to see you, man. I'm so glad to see you. I'm so happy you showed up. God, I miss you. And we hugged each other and I said, you lost some weight. He said, yeah. He said, he looked like he was probably about 90 pounds. And he said, yeah. I said, I'm down to about 150 pounds now. He had uh, two, two strokes. 
which affected his some of his memory capability. And um, he looked like he was near death. Um, so we um, we talked for a very long time, and we sat in that room overlooking the Five Mile River. It was a bright, sunny summer day. And that's when he said to me, I can't believe what we've accomplished. He said, I sit here and I think about all the things that I did that I should not have done. And I regret it. He was his living hell, that he was recounting the arrogance and the really bad judgment that he exercised with clients we should never have lost. It's hard for me to imagine when we started out, you and I, like brothers, kicking ass, not knowing what the hell we were doing, what the outcome was going to be, but a strong desire to change things. We did it. And now when I look back at it, I can't believe we did it. And he said, I look at it this way. It's less than we deserved, but more than we expected. I'm grateful for that. I miss him. I miss him terribly. He's he a great friend and a mentor as well. Then he said, can we go to lunch? And I said, yeah, we went to lunch. He ate with such an appetite. He had clams and soup and corn and a big lavish dessert. And Nubia said, I haven't seen him eating like that in a long time. You've been good for him. I'm glad you came by. And then when we left, he was in a station wagon and uh, Nubia's son was driving and he was in the passenger seat. I got in my car, then I got out and uh, he rolled down the window and he said, hey, man. He says, I don't want to die. I'm afraid to die. And I said, Carl, you're going to live forever. I said, you're too mean to die. And he laughed. And I said, no, you're, you're going to be fine. You'll get through this, believe me. I knew he was going to die. He just looked terrible. And uh, it was such a sad, it was a sad moment. Emil would visit Carl once more later that year to be photographed for Adweek's 20th anniversary issue. A few months after that, on February 15th, 1999, Carl Alley died at his home in Rowayton, Connecticut. He was 74 years old. We were like brothers. He uh, he deserves to be one of the all-time greats in this business. Nobody like him. Ogilvy was a very smart businessman in my mind and a shrewd manager of clients and businesses and people and knew what to say. He was, he was, he could have been a great politician. Bernbach was extraordinary in terms of what he did. What can you say about Bill Bornbach? I mean, he did it all. But I think Carl exceeded both of them in my view, just in terms of raw intelligence, personality, articulation, talent, imagination. Probably the most influential person in my life, despite, you know, my parents who instilled in me whatever virtue I might have or value, I owe to them. But for guidance and uh, inspiration, he was the guy. And he said, mutually, I have gained a lot from you, Amos. So we had this uh, reciprocal agreement that uh, 
worked to our benefits, and uh, it was um, it was great and great for a very long time. It's sad that there had to be an ending, and it's sad that it had to end the way it did. These days, Emil and his wife Elaine, married now for 58 years, live a quiet life in the Douglaston neighborhood of Queens, overlooking Little Neck Bay. Emil is still creating. For years, he worked on a series of paintings about the horrors of war, based on his time as a combat infantryman in Korea, though he'd be the first to tell you other soldiers had it worse than he did. He balanced that out with a series of more patriotic paintings. He also spent a decade writing an illustrated history of Ali and Gargano, and he's written a good chunk of an autobiography, which began, simply enough, as captions on old photographs. His place in advertising history, of course, is secure. And while his partnership with Carl Alley was, in the end, bittersweet, it remains a story for the ages. A couple of kids from Detroit who conquered New York with an audacious approach to advertising and had fun doing it. Well, most of the time. It's a great story. I mean, we knew that a we were going to be brutally truthful, whatever we did. And that we knew that that had a great selling point when you admitted openly, if there was any, any deficiency, providing your advantages were greater, that would give credibility to anything you said. Ed Butler, who was a writer at Doyle Dane, who came to work us, work with us some years later, he came to me one day and he says, Emil, I've got a definition for the agency. I said, what is it, Ed? He said, David Ogilvy gave advertising dignity. Bill Bernbach gave advertising humanity. Carl Alley gave advertising teeth. So what a pleasure it was to do business with people who you could connect with immediately and be on the same wavelength. And then there were people you knew that you were never going to make it. They didn't have an ounce of humor. They were terrified most of the time of doing something that might cost their jobs. When you had a client who accepted what you did and enjoyed it and applauded it, boy, you'd, you'd work day and night and weekends to make them happy. That was, that was enormously gratifying. This business provided opportunities that I never dreamed were possible. And if it hadn't been for Jim Lamar asking Carl Alley, can you recommend an agency for me for this product called Volvo? And then he said, yeah, me. I got two buddies. We'll knock your socks off. You've been listening to Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. My deepest thanks to this week's guest, Emil Gargano. Tagline is a production of Muse by Clio, the content division of the Clio Awards. Our editor is Lane McGivney. Our theme music is by Brian Englishman. A big thank you to the creative agency Gut for helping us promote the show, and a special thank you as well to our sponsor, GSTV. I'm Tim Nudd. This concludes season two of Tagline. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure doing these episodes, and I hope to be back soon with more stories from the world of advertising.
This episode of Tagline was brought to you by GSTV. Every day, millions of Americans get in their vehicles and go. Fueling drives commutes, commerce, and connection. And that's where GSTV has the undivided attention of one in three adults every month. GSTV's national video network owns a unique moment for innovative storytelling, when consumers are engaged, taking action today, and influenced for tomorrow. Fuel your next creative campaign with GSTV. To get started, visit gstv.com slash tagline.